Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. So today uh, I have a question about grass-fed beef and pasture improvement for Miyagi Mornings episode 129, right? And basically this question is, I, I don't like the question, but I'm not putting down the person that asked it at all. The question is, I have like this really sparse 10-acre pasture that I can rotationally graze. I have some steers on it right now, but it was basically a lawn for ever, and I just took it over three years ago. And I have to supplementally feed my cattle, and if I don't supplementally feed my cattle, I can't do it. And so what is the best grain to supplementally feed my cattle until I get the pasture improved? These are really two different questions, and the person also did say, I feed them a minimal amount of grain right now. That's good, right? However, you know, I don't know what minimal, minimal means, right? And the other thing that didn't come with this question is, where are you? And I'll get to how important that is in a minute, even when we're looking to experts like, let's say, Greg Judy and Joel Salatin and people like that. Darby Simpson, who I also will be handing this off to. I am not someone with experience grazing cattle. That's not who I am. That's not who I purport to be. Um, I have a lot of knowledge of that space, but if you ask me about tractoring chickens, at least I can say I have tractored chickens, right? Um, I have worked a little bit with cattle. I have never taken a, 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 a herd and moved it through and managed it to harvest with cattle. I haven't done that, so I'm giving that as a disclaimer. And so something I say today could be wrong. I'm going to send this video to Darby Simpson of our expert council, who has taken, you know, from little B calf to great big steer to processing and graduation into Bovine University, uh, a la your plate, many, many times. So he may have some things to change about this. However, I'm going to start out with this. The correct amount of grain to feed a cow is none. Zero. And the reason for that is a cow is an animal that was derived from... Um, you know, a wild species that was the same but different man. It was not the uh, the same animal when when that animal was uh, domesticated, right? So we started out with something, uh, European ox or something like that, and we have all these different um, families of cattle today that have come from different parts of the world. They all came from something that initially was not domesticated, is what I'm trying to say. And so... We think of that animal as like a domesticated animal. Really, it is a tame, selectively bred wild animal. Biologically, it is not that much different than whatever the initial ancestor was it was made from. And if we think about a buffalo or a cape buffalo or any other wild ruminant anywhere in the world that runs around and lives in savanna-style ecosystems with grasslands and tree lines and things like that, the amount of grain that they generally eat is none. 
Absolutely none. Or if they do, it's a stray seed head or something like that. Now, they'll, if it's palatable and they can get their mouth on it, they'll eat it even to their own detriment. I have seen cattle kill themselves by overeating acorns. Like So I'm not saying they won't eat things that they shouldn't. I'm saying generally nature doesn't allow them to, and if they do, then they die. So they, over time, learn not to do that, right? Cows are kind of stupid because we've dumbed them down, but wild animals don't go around eating things that kill them uh, unless there's something, something happened to that one specific area. Like, if it's something generally will harm an animal, it, it, it's a wild animal, it generally just doesn't eat it. If it, especially if it's something it comes into contact with. So we know wild ruminants don't eat grain. We know that's the natural way that they evolved. We know they should not be eating grain. Now, I'm not picking on somebody that does feed some grain. I'm just saying like that should be the goal. To me, if I have to supplementally feed cattle, and if it's doable, because again, I don't live where this guy does. I'm not dealing with his situation. I'm not trying to keep my homestead or my farmstead or my small ranch or whatever he wants to call it afloat. He is. So... I you know, try to say this with some, some humbleness, but if I had to make sure my cow didn't starve to death and I could not provide enough pasture, then I would feed hay. And hay causes a lot of people to get all, I don't know, triggered or something. No, well, apparently we're not supposed to say that word. Triggering apparently triggers the triggers now. I don't, whatever. <laughs> Side note. Um, so... If you feed hay, you're feeding grass. That, that's the important thing. And I know that haying can be damaging to ecosystems done improperly. It also can be done properly. I don't care how it was done as long as you're not feeding hay that was treated with something the cow shouldn't have. If you're using that hay as a bridge to eliminate the need for hay, then you're using it properly. And no cattleman wants to make hay from their own pasture, right? They only do it because they have a need, some sort of seasonal need or something like that. And the last thing anybody should be doing is making hay and exporting it. Because you're literally taking, this is why people are against it if you're not familiar with the whole argument that we shouldn't be doing hay. If you use hay on your property and you feed it to overwinnow your, cat, your cattle, you've effectively done nothing really that negative to your property because all of the minerals, all the nutrients that were mined by that grass, whatever you made that hay from, that you put through the haying process and fed to your cows and they crapped it back on your land, stayed there. You didn't export your nutrients, right? You didn't export your value. If you just have a field and you grow hay and you produce hay every year and you sell it all off, you're literally mining your field. And then the only way you'll keep that is by bringing in artificial fertilizers, right? Or, you know, you're going to do it organically, so you're bringing cow crap to the field instead of the cow to eat the field. This is why people oppose hay. But it exists. And that's how I look at it. Since it exists, and since it's a resource, and since you have a problem with a bad managed pasture, if you can feed your animals hay, and you have to, I would do that before grain. Now, Greg Judy would get on here and yell at me. And so if you're haying your cattle, you're not managing your pasture, right? And he'd be right. And this is where I would kind of turn a corner to, well, what's the real problem? So I have 10 acres that was managed as a lawn. That means there's grass there. And, and again, this is where we come into, like, how brittle is the landscape? What's your drought cycle like, et cetera? Most likely, again, I don't want to speak for someone I don't know when I have that limited details. You can read in the description the very small amount of details that I have. 
But more likely, the problem is after three years, if you're not getting the improvement you're looking for, you're either grazing too large a paddock or, believe it or not, possibly too few cattle. And so it's more an effective management strategy than what do I feed until the pasture comes back. Because let's imagine that you're not actually, I know it sounds crazy, but you're not putting enough animals on the land. Okay, if you if you don't put enough animals on the land, and they don't work the land, and they don't drop enough fertility, and if you're not doing an effective kind of like you graze a third, trample a third, leave a third, and move, if you're not running that pattern, even with cattle on the land, it may not ever really improve. It may just kind of stay in this kind of like disarrayed state. And so you won't get to where you're trying to go, no matter how much grain you feed or, or what you're doing. And likewise, if you're overgrazing. So we could be overgrazing because, well, we have too many cattle. But we also could be overgrazing because our paddock size is too small. More likely, we're overgrazing because our paddock rotation is not significantly have enough frequency. See, and these are all variables. And you can have the best intentions... But if you get any of those variables wrong, it's going to be very hard to improve that pasture. Rotational grazing works so well. And so we see it work, and we understand that pretty much it is we take cattle, we put them in a spot, we move them. And that's what we do. And so since it seems that simple, and since it is that simple, we sort of oversimplify the simplicity, if that makes sense. And we don't think about all these variables. You know... You might need a totally different rotational frequency in February than you need in June. And you might need a totally different, in fact, you probably do need a different rotational frequency in September versus July. You've got the peak of summer and you've got waning in the fall. October, you're getting into that lush fall growth before winter darth. And then how far north are you? Like the greatest time in the world to, um, to graze cattle here in Texas is about October through May. Like, it's, it's just, it's glorious. And then as soon as you get to, like, June, it's not so great. And right now, everything is dry and dying. So we have to change frequency. So I think all of that needs to be taken into account. And I'm going to suggest that you look more at, like, the work of, like, again, Greg Judy, uh, Grass-Fed Life, look at what Darby Simpson is doing, and we'll get Darby to answer this question from his perspective as well. Uh, and I also recommend that you look at, like, Joel Salatin, uh, et cetera, Uh, Alan Savory would be another person to look at. But I also want you to always be careful. This is more generic now. It's not just about cattle. When you look at somebody, especially a Salatin, right, um, you have to be mindful of the fact that they know what they know about where they farm. And while their principles are largely applicable all over the world, they're fine-tuned to a high degree, in Joel's case, to Virginia to uh, Greg Judy's case of Missouri, right? And G Greg Judy's not playing around with chickens as far as I know. Like, so Joel's doing this kind of leader-follower, chicken, pigs, and, and cattle, and some turkeys, and some geese, right? And, and Greg is mainly doing just cattle. So there's variances in between your experts, variances between their, their, their regions. Now, this is the thing. Somebody will say, I bet you, if I took Joel Salatin or Greg Judy and drop them right in your backyard, they could make it work where you are. They can. But what's going to happen is the second what they normally do doesn't work, 
They're going to observe the feedback, and they're going to adjust to that feedback. And they're going to fine-tune the methodology to the circumstance. When you're just looking at what they're doing, and you're trying to emulate it 100%, you don't have the knowledge in the beginning to be able to do that. And that's why it takes a little bit more humility as you're going forward with this type of thing and this type of thinking. And it also takes a little bit of removal of what I call hero worship. We get a lot of kind of hero worship in like every sector, and regenerative agriculture is not immune to this. So because Joel says so, or because Greg says so, or God forbid if you believe it because Jack Spierko says so, then this must be. Well, the thing that they're saying probably is, but maybe where you are it isn't, or it is 90%. And there's these tiny things that need to be adjusted. And this is kind of the big takeaway on this lesson. Like, You can look at the most incredible minds in the world in this space. And in some instances, their problems are that they are too addicted to their own beliefs or too stern in their own beliefs to the point where they've proven what can be done, but nobody else can do it, even where they are. And to me, that is, that is too fine-tuned. Right? It's fine for them, but if you're trying to emulate them, it's not going to work. Here's an example. Uh, Masanobu Fukuoka is probably the most well-known name in this entire space, even though he wasn't a cattle grazer, and we're excited out that now. But kind of this whole regenerative agriculture, permaculture world, Fukuoka is, like, the man, right? Like, he did incredible things in Japan. Do you know that his sons took over his land and they can't do it? That no one has ever actually done a property like his and maintained it and had success ever. Ever, never, ever. People have used plenty of his techniques and had great success, but no one's ever been able to build a Fukuoka-san farm. Ever. And so if you take any of these people that give this advice and you become almost like they have written some sort of Bible Right, some sort of thing to be followed 100%, you will probably never have the success you're looking for, let alone the success they had. Because you're talking about a guy that lived in a place for most of his life and, and probably without knowing it, did something different because the, 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 the color of the dragonfly changed slightly. Like they was that in tune with his land. And like you can become that in tune with your land, but you can't do it if you're completely married to somebody else's view of the way things should be done, and here's another thing to defend these people, because you know somebody's going to think I'm criticizing them. They would all tell you the same thing. You ask all the people that are really masters of this, Mark Shepard would tell you the same thing. Like In the end, all you can do is this, this kind of water management design will work anywhere, but you have to make it fit your farm, and you have to figure out what to grow there, and you have to figure out how you manage it, and you have to figure out whether you want cows in your life or not, or whether you want pigs in your life or not. But going back to the core here again, I think that probably one of the, the, the most likely scenarios of this original question is that it's not an effective paddock management strategy. If you've been doing it three years, which is what I get from the data, that you've been doing it three years already, you've definitely been there, maybe you've only been doing it two months, and then maybe it's just not enough time yet. But we need to make sure that we're having sufficient impact on the land without over-impacting the land. And whether we do that by we put more cattle in a bigger paddock, 
We have a smaller paddock with less cattle. We change the frequency of the rotation. One way or another, that needs to happen. And the other thing I would say is what you also need to be doing to improve pasture like this is seeding. And I would not go, like 10 acres, you could end up with thousands and thousands of dollars in a seed and most of it going to waste. What I really think you need to be doing is a very light overseeding, pasture by pasture, come up with a good mix of self-reseeding annuals and perennials, and then you need to lightly seed before you graze. Like this isn't, these cows are not chickens. Cows don't scratch the ground, right? Cows trample the ground. So if you have a light overseeding and cattle go in and they graze the third you let them graze, they trample the third you allow them to trample, and they leave the third that you let them leave, and then you move them, they've stepped those seeds into the ground and they've trampled all of that other third down onto the soil-to-soil contact, and then they crapped on it. So now you have a little seed pushed into the soil with some uh, mulch over top of it and a smattering of crap. It gonna grow, okay? And I, and I don't think it would hurt either to come in behind and maybe overseed lightly afterward. But I'll take this from the work of Ben Falk and the pasture he built in the hills in, in, in Vermont is amazing. And he did, because it's much smaller landscape, much more brittle landscape, much steeper landscape, much smaller landscape, built it with sheep. But he did the same thing. Sheep and chickens, electro-fence, paddock shifted. And what he said in the beginning is he seeded the hell out of it. And it didn't really work. And when he started lightly seeding it, everything took off. So those are the things I would try. I'll get Darby to look at this. And anybody that says I'm wrong about what I said today is probably right. Okay, So uh, I'm coming at this with a general understanding of the concept. And uh, also, you know, live streaming, folks, I am still working on this. Tomorrow we're going to talk about nothing to do with animals. Well, humans are kind of animals. We're going to talk about cryptocurrency tomorrow. We'll get on that one next. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another episode of Miyagi Mornings. Hey, guys and gals. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 130. And today we're going to talk about something called Bitcoin maximalism. What is maximalism, you ask? Well, the term itself is pretty self-explanatory. A Bitcoin maximalist is generally a person that believes in the cryptocurrency space there is Bitcoin and there is shitcoin and there is no in-between. That's actually not where I... I, I really think that they get it wrong. Your opinion that something is a, a valid project or a shitcoin is yours alone, and, and I don't really mind it at all that people feel that way. I refer to myself as something that I, I think most people um, just would say is not a thing, and, and those people would probably be right. I don't have a better term for it, though, and if somebody has a better term for it other than the maximalists themselves who would just say, well, you're a shitcoiner, uh, I would refer to myself as a maximalist light. And this leads to what I see in the maximalist community. They, I call it a purity test, where we, we've left the world of logic and reason and we've gone into the world of ideology and religion. And what I mean by a maximalist light is, if somebody says to me, but I think, I, Jack, I think Bitcoin is the cryptocurrency. It won the war already. It will win the war long term. It will be the global reserve standard as far as cryptocurrencies go, if not more. It will liberate more people into economic liberty than anything else that man has ever created. It is the standard by which everything else should be measured. And a person probably, if they want to take the least amount of risk 
and they want to be in cryptocurrency should buy Bitcoin and, and put themselves into a coma, uh, metaphorically, and never even bother looking at anything else ever again. I agree. But when they say, and there's no purpose for any other cryptocurrency ever, period, I say, no. <laughs> and then I'm a shitcoiner. And then I am not to be trusted for advice and... Most of these people that come from this mindset don't actually know very much about cryptocurrency in general. They have read other people's tweets or whatever, and they have decided that they follow this profit ideology. Like, Bitcoin, like Satoshi is the profit, and Bitcoin is the religion. And I think this is a problem in the space. And one of the people in the Bitcoin space who I have tremendous respect for, and I really I love his podcast and I recommend listening to it, uh, Peter McCormack. I, I think he, and it's, it's uh, what Bitcoin did as the podcast, I think he's beginning to come to terms with this purity. I heard, heard an interview with him recently, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy behind Bitcoin Magazine that just ran the giant Bitcoin festival in Miami, um, and they were talking about it, and he was saying, you know, I, I wonder if we're backing ourselves into something with this purity test. Because, and what he brought up is one of the things, I don't think anybody from the Bitcoin community has brought up how to solve this problem yet. And I think when you have actual problems that you can't solve, using other things to solve them is a good thing. And in, in many instances, a lot of things that people say that Bitcoin can't do, it can. And there are other technologies that work with Bitcoin to enable that. And that's the maximalist position. That whatever problem you can find, here's a technology that solves that problem, and you can still use Bitcoin. And therefore, we don't need anything else. And by having one crypto to rule them all, so to say... We actually have the most leverage and the most power at doing the thing that I'm totally on board with. Destroying or at least severely weakening the global banks. That's what this is for me more than anything else. More than even, you know, your standard kind of anarcho-capitalist mindset, your agorist mindset. I want to eliminate the need, if not the existence, of the global banking system. That's, that's, and I believe Bitcoin is great for doing that. Here's a problem. Bitcoin is volatile. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's a problem in of itself. It also it does mean there's an opportunity. And this was Peter McCormick's example of some place that maybe he needs to understand a little bit about because most of these these products are built on the Ethereum blockchain. A little bit about ERC20. But if he even says that, then the 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 maximalist vultures will descend and pick from his bones, right? Because stable coins, stable coins, Bitcoin. You cannot make a Bitcoin product that is stable. So if Bitcoin's at like $65,000 US, and you're like, you know, I'd like to take a little profit on this because I know a correction's coming. If you're going to be a Bitcoin-only person, what are you going to do? It's actually very difficult in most exchange situations to sell your Bitcoin directly for dollars, especially if you just plan on going back into Bitcoin. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So a stable coin like, I don't know, Tether, makes a lot of sense. If for no other reason, so that I can realize a gain if I choose to. Now, how you'd make a Bitcoin stable coin, I don't know. Now, I'm not talking about a central bank digital currency here. I'm talking about a privately issued dollar backed or what, what, what economy are you in? You know, I was, here's another example for a stable coin. I was listening to an interview today with Peter McCormack with um, a parliament member from the small island nation of Tonga. They're looking at bringing in Jack Mahler's strike. They use a 
a currency, a local currency, I can't remember the name of it, but let's call it the Tongan dollar. That's not what it's called. It's like the Panga or something like that. And it is pegged to five other currencies. It's like the Australian dollar, the New Zealand dollar, the U.S. dollar, the Euro, and the Great British Pound, if I remember right. You can fact check that shit and see if I remember right. Um, now, they're totally willing to bring in what he calls like the rails of Bitcoin, which would be an app, an app like Stripe and just basically say we're not going to get in anybody's way of using it. Don't need to pass any real laws or do any major things or restrict the banks. We can just let it into the country freely. And you can see right away where some citizens may need to hold money for a week or two, and then they need to buy basic goods and services, and they may want to take some portion of the Bitcoin they've received, probably mostly initially just like El Salvador and remittances, and move it immediately to a position of stability. So a stable coin for them that basically is a synthetic version of their, their Tongan dollar, Pengo, whatever it is, would make a lot of sense. When when Strike went into El Salvador, and of course all the maximalists love Jack Mahler's now, he's great, but when Strike went into El Salvador, they had to use Tether to match the dollar currency of El Salvador as an option to make the thing work. So right there, right there, we're out of this entire idea that there is no need for another currency. You notice I'm not bitching about energy usage, because I think it's a false False argument. It's nonsensical. It's been destroyed. You notice I'm not bitching about being able to spend and, and receive small amounts of Bitcoin because the fees are too high, because it's a nonsensical argument. It's already been destroyed. There's so many of these arguments that the maximalists have made perfectly executed, decisive, like argument killing, destroy the central point arguments against that we don't need to worry about them anymore. If you want to buy a coffee and a scone or a pupusa down in El Salvador, you can use Strike. And then, like, the, the, the maximalist shit corner, I guess, is what you call it. goes, but it cost too much money, but now you have a third party because it's lightning. And they don't understand, because most of them don't know anything about this, that anybody can build their own payments network on lightning. Anybody can run a lightning node, right? It's, it's not a centralized third party using... A technology, an augmentive technology, is exactly when people start this shit about, but what Soshi, Satoshi intended. When I hear that, I'm like, okay, first of all, the guy or group of people that is Satoshi were not fucking prophets, okay? They were not people to be obeyed as an authority, and every one of those people follows it up with some stupid sentence like, And you should read the white paper. Most of those people never read the white paper, paper even though they said they did. And the white paper of anything is not the end-all, be-all of it. It's not a freaking you know, copy of the Torah to be opened and read backwards and then revered and followed letter for letter. It's here's this idea. Here's how I think we can do this. If you, if you look at all the work, all the interactions, the writings specifically on forums and back and forth with the people that actually built Bitcoin with Satoshi... You find that this, this entire purity argument of, well, what Satoshi wanted is irrelevant. It's nonsensical. What they wanted to do was build something that had the means to be a true digital currency, to go from zero to one, which has taken mankind thousands of years to get from zero to one, and then let augmentative technology make it work. So a thing like Lightning it would be exactly in keeping with the original intent of Bitcoin, but I don't give a shit if it is or not. I'm not worried about anybody's intent. I'm worried about what works with the technology we have, and technology freaking changes. The intent of Bitcoin, if you want to make that argument, is that you have this underlying digitally scarce commodity that can act as a currency through being a reserve, 
And then you can build anything you want off of it. That's actually the maximalist argument. It's very well articulated. Here's one problem. What about privacy? What about the fact that there are bitcoins that have been tagged through certain exchanges that are considered tainted, and if you put them on certain exchanges, you can have your account shut down, and that Bitcoin, and, and it, it's happened to some people, all the currency you're holding on that exchange seized. And they're starting to do shit now like, well, you can mix coins. Yes, but if you mix coins, they become tainted. So I guess as long as you're playing lily white by the rules and you're sure of where all your Bitcoin came from, We're good to go. It's all AMA or whatever the hell they call it, you know, super pure Bitcoin, and it's all public and known. Well, you're good. And I know the maximalists say, you can go into cold storage, you can do this. It's still on a public ledger, and if that address can in any way be associated with you, they can find out what you have and how much you have, right? And if you want to move it anywhere, if it's tainted, and God knows how long ago it could have been tainted in all of this deep, Work that's being done now with with with, um, with technology and deep data mining, they could say this. You know, this was used to buy heroin on the Silk Road back in uh, you know 2012 or 2013 or something like that. Oh, it's tainted, right? This is when people make the argument argument that Bitcoin is not fungible. This is what they're talking about. Now, I don't think the problem is as big as the privacy advocates make it from a standpoint of fungibility, but it's there. And you know what the solution the, the entire Bitcoin community has to it? Absolutely the square root of fuck all nothing. There is not a solution proposed that gets around this issue with Bitcoin. So how can I conduct private transactions where if I do it with Bitcoin, it in itself makes the Bitcoin that spits out the other end potentially seized by exchanges, government entities, etc. And I know what you're going to say they can't seize it. They can't seize it. If it's in your wallet that you control, but if you ever want to move it into some other form of currency, all of a sudden it has to go through some sort of an exchange, or you're gray market, black marketing that. And then sooner or later, that thing pops up somewhere that somebody's trying to, to use the fungibility to go into dollars or euros or whatever, and they can't. And then maybe it comes back to you. I don't know. This problem might not be as big as we make it out to be, but anybody that's in Bitcoin inherently should not be trusting government. That's why we do this shit. And you don't have a solution where Monero or R, Pirate Chain, have a solution to this, including things like back-end atomic swaps through privacy coins where we're not mixing Bitcoins, we're just using different Bitcoins on different ends of the transaction. Until the maximalist can solve stability and security, this idea that every single person that does anything or says anything about or touches anything to do with any sort of, let's say, altcoin is a shitcoiner is stupid. And I'll also tell you why else it's stupid. Because this idea that someone who is an incredible friend to you, an incredible advocate to you, I have been pushing Bitcoin, as people on this stream would tell you, since 2014 heavily, and I've been at least kind of saying, hey, you should look at this since like 2013. And I've probably talked about it and dabbled in it a little bit in 2012. I, there's, I have probably brought tens of thousands, if not more people, into the world of Bitcoin, but I'm a shitcoiner. Because I hold some other currencies. Dominant currency I hold has always been Bitcoin, except when my stupidity of going into a shitcoin hit a home run, and then I made lots and lots of money on your so-called shitcoins. 
I mean, this is a nonsensical argument. And I would challenge anybody that is in this maximalist position. I would be happy to have an open discussion with you. And we could talk about these issues. Because if you can solve them in a way that makes me comfortable with it, then I understand your position. If you can't solve two of the most basic issues here, which again, speed of transaction, got a solution for that. The, the energy usage uh, argument is nonsensical. I agree with you. The, the, the thought that any of these currencies are actually going to surplant Bitcoin and become the next dominant cryptocurrency, I find nonsensical. I agree with you. But can you give me a privacy solution? Can you give me a privacy solution with Bitcoin only? That, that won't flag the coins themselves as being somehow tainted. No? Can you give me a stability solution with Bitcoin only so that the person that has... I've talked about this before, but people say people don't spend Bitcoin because it's too expensive to spend or because it's too valuable and increases too much nobody wants to let go of it. The reason people don't spend Bitcoin is they don't earn it. If I hired you tomorrow and I paid your entire salary in Bitcoin... You'd start spending Bitcoin this week, and all of a sudden your, your aversion to something like the Lightning Network would go away because you'd be like, oh, here's a payment solution. It works just like my on, online bill pay, and I can pay all these freaking people that want my money in dollars. I can use Bitcoin, and they get dollars, right? And you would have that short-term money, money that you're going to earn this month and pay bills with this month. You don't want that money to sit in Bitcoin during a down market like we just went through, do you? So you need an ability to stabilize that payment money. Your midterm money might be a mix. And your long-term money, I think you're a fool if you don't just stay in Bitcoin unless you're investing in some other security, business, commodity, etc. Right? So that's how everybody that has enough money to have three buckets allocates their money right now. If you're not, if you're not living paycheck to paycheck, you probably have a savings account and then you have investments. And you don't consider your savings account an investment. Well, what needs to be in that savings account? Probably a mix, but you also have a liquid amount. Not, and I don't mean technically liquid. I mean it's liquid in your mind. You know my electric bill is going to be 300 bucks this month. You know my mortgage payment is going to be $1,800 this month. And so if you just made your mortgage payment and you just had a significant paycheck or revenue check come in and you're not going to pay your mortgage for another 30 days, do you want to sit in Bitcoin for those 30 days if, if you're in a bear market? No. So again, what's your solution, maximalists? If anybody that touches anything that's crypto is impure, how do you solve that problem? Those are my thoughts, and I think this is a very detrimental thing to the space. And I also think that there can be there can be peaceful coexistence here if if people would pull their heads out of their what we call the army or fourth point of contact. You know, all these people that are Bitcoin maximalists, I guarantee you like ninety eight percent of them pay their bills with whatever fiat currency uh, is the currency of their country. If they're a European, they're paying it in euros. If they're an American, they're paying it in dollars. If they're Canadian, they're paying it in Canadian dollars. You're not pure. You're using the ultimate shitcoin. There is no shitcoin that is a bigger shitcoin than central bank currencies that are designed to lose value over time. So you're So the maximalist... They won't use these other solutions that forces themselves into using, let's say, U.S. dollars. By your own argument, you're the ultimate shit corner. I don't actually believe that. That's your argument, not mine. So anyway, guys, uh, I hope you enjoyed this one. We will catch up to you tomorrow. And as usual with Miyagi Mornings, 
whatever we do next will not be a cryptocurrency uh, topic. We always try to do one of those a week or at least break them up. All right, folks, welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 131. Um, I... Uh, I got this question off the MeWe post, and it is an interesting one. It is a deep thought one. It is somewhat political, which I try not to do on Miyagi Mornings, but this is, uh, this is not really political. This is more like what if and when, and it's not about it. When I say I'm not political on Miyagi Mornings, I mean that I'm not trying to influence pod, uh, politics. I'm not trying to tell you which person to vote for, which one of your rulers to choose or something like that. Rather, I am trying to tell you how to deal with life and what those clowns do matters and what other clowns around us do matters. So here's the short version of this question. There's a lot more detail and thought given, and it's a very thoughtful thing, and it is on that same post. It's like the second to the last comment right now in the chain. You can go read the rest of it if you'd like to, but I'm going to read it directly for you to make sure I get it right. Jack, I've heard you wisely decry against foolish folks who would wish for some sort of violent insurgency. You've alluded, however, that there is a line that, if crossed by the state, could cause you to use firearms against them. I myself have been wondering where that line should be. I assure you there is no defeatist attitude here. I am hard at work building a better life. The events of the past few years, however, have clearly changed society for the worse. Certainly, society has been changed for the worse. And I would say that mostly in the macro Over the last four decades, society has been continuously changed for the worse. Though there's been some victories for liberty and freedom mixed in there, um, because if you don't have freedom for all, you don't have freedom for any. That's my opinion. Uh, and there was a lot of things that in the last 40 years, I would actually say, are, are, are fairly good. But the overall macro of movement has been toward more totalitarianism and more control by the state. And the question here, again, which I, I think is very thoughtful, is... Well, where is the line? You know, we talk about the fact that, that if, if absolutely forced, armed resistance is the last resort, but it is a resort. Um, here's the thing. I think any of us that think with common sense, rationality, and ethics, it almost doesn't matter where our line is. Because I think that if you're in that group of people, the way things are right now, the decision is going to be made for you before it gets to your line. And I hope that makes sense to my folks that are in the live feed today. And what I mean by that is, I think it was really stupid that several hundred thousand people went to the Capitol building. Okay, I think it was really stupid. Because... In the circumstances and the way things were ginned up, what occurred was going to happen. I said the day before the rally, this is going to happen. Now, I do believe it was further ginned up and further encouraged by both Capitol Security and by the FBI with operatives. I believe that happened. But it couldn't have happened if they didn't go do it. And now there's a whole shit ton of fallout from that event that the vast majority of people that are being affected by it, had absolutely nothing to do with. And whether you think it was a good idea or not, whether you were involved or not, whether you had anything to do with it or not, and I'm not saying that the people that are in jail from it deserve to be in there. I absolutely don't believe they do. Um, I'm not saying there's not a double standard. I'm saying that there was a result that's bad for you that you didn't touch. 
and I'm using it as an analogy, okay? I think the point at which you end up with, let's say we call it a hot war between some form of armed insurgency and the existing apparatus we call the United States government will occur before most rational heads would wish for it to or reach the point where they believe it's necessary. And then it affects you. And I think that if it, if it goes big enough, fast enough, you could be put into a point of having to choose a side. And I personally think we should be doing everything possible to avoid that ever occurring. And I want to quote for you right now Dwight Eisenhower, who of course was the commanding general of World War II, President of the United States, and one of, in my opinion, one of the last truly decent people, even though I don't agree with many things that he did during his administration, one of the last truly decent people to occupy the office of the presidency. He said one time, I hate war is only a soldier who has lived it can, only as one who has seen its brutality, its futility, and its stupidity. And I want to talk about a segment of society that I'm part of that you probably hear from often. Do you hear us talk about this thing being an eventuality? And I, I think some of the words that we say are either not for you if you're not part of this demographic, or maybe we're speaking sort of a different language. And I'm, I'm speaking of veterans... And I'm mainly speaking of veterans who have either served in combat or were trained in the Marine Corps or the Army prior to them getting rid of, let's say, bayonet training. Anything from that point backward, whether that person was in combat or a combat MOS or not. They, they take you into that realm at a very specific age for a very specific reason. Specifically with males, the prefrontal cortex of our brains are not fully developed until about the age of 25. Even brilliant people, they don't have that full development of the prefrontal cortex, which is where our empathy and our ability to think about the future as it relates directly back to us is. It's where it's located in the brain. So in other words, young people do stupid shit. Young people are also susceptible to programming at a much higher level than someone who's already crossed that threshold, especially when it runs counter to what is natural for the human, uh, the human being to do if you're thinking about your future and the future of the rest of the world, which is kill another human being. And what they do is they teach you to kill that other human being And whether you agree with the, the, the tactic or not, it's because if you don't learn to do that and you end up in a situation where you do have to do that, you're going to die. And the people that are depending on you to, to, to have their six are going to die too. So we can say it's for ill, we can say it's for good, it doesn't matter, it is. And when you're dealing with people, and I'm not disrespecting the other two uh, you know, major services or even the, the third with the Coast Guard or even the Space Force or whatever... But so, And if those people were in, in some sort of combat MOS or they were overseas, it applies to them as well. But in the Marine Corps and the Army in particular, this is done to the point where it doesn't matter what that person's job is. By the time that person comes out of basic training with a not fully developed prefrontal cortex and has been taught to knock down targets at 250, 300, 500 meters, 
and see that target as nothing but a target and pull the trigger, that switch has happened in the person's brain. And it is why you will notice that people who come from that background at all have a very sick, twisted, dark humor. And I'm going somewhere with this that really needs to be understood by a lot of you that look on that aren't part of our group. And when you hear us say certain things with kind of a fatalistic attitude of like, yeah, well, if that's what it is, you know, or bring it on, or like we talk about something like, uh, you know, when, when, when it happens and like they hear from the trees the song, let the body sit the floor coming or something like that. None of that should be construed to believe, to, to, to believe that us as a group want this. It is a dark, twisted humor that is speaking a language that is foreign to people who are not part of it. And anybody that's in the chat right now, that you come from that background, if you agree with what I'm saying, type Y in. Just for a yes, just type Y into the chat. And the Ys will start flying because I know there's a ton of veterans in here. We don't mean it for you to hear it if you're not capable of dissecting the twisted, dark humor of it because it's how we developed a coping mechanism. And the last thing we want is to see, there goes, yeah, why, why, yes, 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 yes. See, it just, it's, it's, it's universal if you from, from this, you know, background or from anything where you were exposed to things like this, even if you weren't a veteran, where you actually understand what's going on here, the psychology of this mindset of, you know, joking about the book of Bugalations or whatever, right? It is a coping mechanism, and it is speaking a language that would be as foreign to you as Chinese if you're not part of it. So when you hear us do that, what you actually should hear from us is, y'all motherfuckers don't want this. Y'all don't want to be exposed to this. You do not understand what happens when that switch goes in your mind and it can never go back. You can be a decent person. You can be a calm person. You can be a very sane person. You can be a very rational person. But when that switch is made in the human mind, where one has been conditioned and trained to take a life, it never goes away and it never stops affecting you, I believe, until the day you die. I'm going to be 49 this year. I came out of service at 21, and it still affects me. And I did not, I was not in any big battles or anything like that. That's, you know, that's not my battle. I was a freaking mechanic. And I'm telling you, when you lay on the ground completely exhausted at the end of that bayonet course, for example, and every single part of your being is gone, you are just gone. You can't move because you've never, you've never given that much to anything ever in your life. You've never been that driven with that much violence ginned up in your heart. Somewhere in that world, there is a switch, and you can never turn it off. And that's why you hear us talk the way that we talk. It's not to encourage this, it's to discourage this, and it's also to just kind of swallow down the eventual reality that someday we may see what we know can be in our own backyard, and we don't want to. And again, I'm going to go back to the line, wherever it is for us. If you're sane and rational, wherever it is for you, will not be a line that we reach by our own choosing. There will be some point, if it happens, that a segment that is not anchored on one side or the other will start the battle someone will fire the shot heard round the world.
And when that happens, then it's very difficult for that to be extinguished. And that's why I think almost every other option, and notice I use the word almost, because sometimes people do not hear things like many or most or almost. Almost every other option is better. And the line needs to remain that if there is recourse, then there should be not war. And there should be not conflict, and there should not be violence. And the point, and my deepest fear, is that your government will push us there is that we will reach a point where the average person feels there is no longer any recourse. There is no longer an alternative other than complete and total submission. And at that point, it's on. And that is the delicate balance the march of totalitarianism has played in our lives Through most of us that are like my age, a little older, a little younger, you've watched it happen in real time. A very slow, gradual removal of rights and recourses and ways to redress grievances. And I think that the most likely scenario here is actually not this type of an armed conflict, though there could be some violent riots or something like that erupt here and there. I think more likely... You, we may be very well headed for what you would call an amicable divorce of the states. Different groups of states and regions breaking up like the Soviet Union did at the end of the Cold War. That may be very well the case. We may get to a point where people actually, and if you, and if you think about it, what always precedes this, when some sort of a supernation, superpower, republic, Because, you know, those of you that, you know, believe in the word republic so much, it's like a magic unicorn. The Soviet Union was a republic. And what happened in the Soviet Union before the breakup was a large number of people used the freedom of movement, even in that totalitarian republic, to move. And they moved into satellite states that eventually became things like Lithuania, Ukraine, right, or Ukraine, Georgia, etc., When they, the rats notice the ship is sinking, what do they do? They, they swim away. And a lot of that happened. And I want you to just suspend, you know, this whole it can't be thing for just a moment. And I want you to look at what's happening in the United States right now. It's not only that people are leaving what I would consider communist states. It's, they're not going to all of the states that aren't communist. They're actually going to a very small select list as the main places people are going. People are choosing places like Florida and Texas. And you can say South Dakota all you want, but there's only so much opportunity and hence security economically in South Dakota, though it's a pretty great place to live. But I mean, South Dakota has a population that's about the same as Fort Worth, Texas. So there's a limit to what that state can support economically. So what you're seeing is the states with the greatest amount of individual freedom, and that are not only, like, because Texas isn't as free as, it's not even close to as free as Florida. It's not as close to as free as New Hampshire. But it's the states that are moving in the, in the right direction toward liberty that people are specifically targeting and moving to. 
And so I do think this can happen. And what I'm going to end on, though, is, as always, as I've said for 13 years, I reserve the right to be wrong. And you guys know there's times that I've said, this is going to happen. And 99 times out of 100, if I say, this will happen, it does. There's times when I say, this will happen, here's how I think it will happen. And generally speaking, it happens, but I may get the how wrong. And then there's times where I say this might happen. And this is a time I'm going to say, I do not know. I do not know. I don't claim to know. I'm only guessing at this. I do believe that if we ever end up in a full, you know, armed resistance conflict within our country, it will be the case that people like myself, people like the people listening to me right now, people that the words I've said today resonate with and it makes sense, It, that decision will be made for us. We will not make the decision. And that's a very, very dark reality. But I don't know that it will happen. I know that's how it will happen if it does. I do not think we will all get together and go, yeah, guys, you know what? They, they you know, like, like they did during the American Revolution. This has gone too far. Start forming, you know, well-organized militias, appoint our own Congress, and then write a letter to the president like the colonists. Like that's not going to happen this time. That's not how this will go down if it goes down. And my belief is it probably will not, but I could be wrong. And I think what that means is strategic relocation within the borders of the United States right now is probably a good idea. For that and many other reasons. It's one of these things that right now I see an incredible amount of potential upside to and very little downside to. Very little downside to. There is a, a reality that if something like this is going to happen, whether it be conflict or whether it be amicable divorce, there's a side of the line that you don't want to be on. And the truth is, if you were alive in 1850, the side of the line you didn't want to be on was the south side of the Mason-Dixon line. No matter what your feelings about the why, the where, the what of that conflict are, The results of that conflict dictated that you would have suffered far more if you would have hung out in Georgia versus taking the opportunity to move to, like, Massachusetts. That would have been a better place to be when everything went... And if you have a peaceful resolution, I'm going to tell you that you were far better off being on the Lithuanian side of the border between Lithuania and Russia when the Soviet Union fell apart, then you were being on the Russian side of that border. So whether it be peaceful or conflict, the places I don't want to be are the same places I've been saying to get out of for other reasons for years. California, Oregon, Washington, Illinois, the entire damn Northeast. You know, maybe the exception is New Hampshire, but you're in an island now. I mean, I, I hate to say that because the Free State sponsor, uh, sponsors my show, and they might get mad about me saying this, but, you know, maybe. But if I didn't live where I live right now, I'd either be moving to where I live or I'd be picking Florida. Those are my thoughts, and I know that's not really where this started out, but, um, you know, and, and I mean, like Life Starts Now is saying, at least the Upper Peninsula of Michigan will secede. You don't know that, dude. There's this entire idea 
of the, the like where I am is going to work out. I, I'm not saying where I am is going to work out. I'm just saying in all the scenarios, it's probably one of the better places to be. You're in the Upper Peninsula. What are you going to do? Be surrounded by the uh, the basically communist United States and the communist states of, of Canada? I know people don't want to abandon their homes. I'm not saying to do it. I'm just saying that's that's a possibility. Anyway, with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up for today, and I will be back with a much more happy subject to wrap up the week tomorrow. Well, hi there, folks. It's Jack Spierko here with Miyagi Mornings, episode 132. Something I've heard an awful lot about recently, and it's coming mostly from the right wing of the same bird that has the left wing, Uh, lately is, we need to break up big tech. They're too big. They're a monopoly. We need to do something about this. And I'm sorry, but whenever you start talking about government and then you are using justification for whatever you're asking for with, well, we, we have to do something, generally the results are bad, like really bad. Like it almost never works out for good because now we're doing something because we have to do something rather than actually trying to solve the problem. We have to do something. And to me, this is a stupid idea for a variety of reasons. Let's start off with how it supposedly worked in the past. So the thing that all of the talking heads on like Fox News right now are talking about is, well, back in the 80s, man, like the AT&T ruled the world, so we broke up the monopoly and then everything got better. These are people that don't know anything except what the little prompter that some person with a nose ring that wasn't alive when that happened writes for them to write because it didn't really accomplish much. It did create a very short-term increase in competition. Uh, very quickly after that, you know, you could see the writing on the walls that was coming. Uh, we ended up in a wireless world, and almost nobody has a landline phone anymore. And then the AT&T wireless began to consume things like, you know, um, I can't even think of the, the 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 biggest one they consumed, but I was actually my provider, and AT&T bought it, and that's why I have AT&T still today. And now you have AT&T is still the 800-pound gorilla in the room, and it really didn't do anything. But you know, we can go back further. Like the other one they keep citing is the railroads. Okay, well, you know, in both of these instances, you had kind of control of the infrastructure was the issue, right? So. Uh, with AT&T, you had control of the copper lines. A line had to go to every house, and that gave them an incredible advantage. And, of course, your tax dollars or your grandparents' tax dollars and their grandparents' tax dollars paid to put all that copper in. Uh, I will give credit to the phone company because they did maintain it. But, you know, if somebody builds you a network like that, it's a pretty nice gift. Um, when we go back to rail... And it really, you can't separate the railroad monopoly from the oil monopoly because they really went together very strongly through uh, antitrust, and that's part of how they broke them up. But people say, so the railroad companies could charge whatever they want, and they could give priority to other people, and that's like the Internet. And no, it's not, because the railroads had a single track that went between, let's say, Philadelphia and Chicago. There weren't two ways to go there. There was no way to have a competing railroad. So the idea seems to make a lot more sense than breaking up big tech today. However, as always is the case, the solution to problems that are based on technology, whether it's railroad, whether it's pumping oil, whether it's uh, phone calls, whether it's today's internet, is the next technology. So why is no one remotely concerned about a railroad monopoly today? 
Well, wherever you are, if you look outside your windows, if you finally go far enough around the whole building, you'll probably see one of them. They're called roads, maroads, right? So maroads came, and the automobile and the truck came, and then this ability of the railroads to effectively monopolize the transportation of goods died with it. And so today what we have is we have an Internet where we have a billion, billion tracks, There is nothing that prevents anybody from hosting or distributing content to anybody that wants to see it. Now, I agree that YouTube has a habit, YouTube, which is Google, has a habit of censoring videos. They've censored mine. I'm not saying that's okay, but I am saying that if, if I am ever thrown off of YouTube, which I expect to happen, I have one warning and one strike, so two more strikes and I'm out, um, I still have other platforms to distribute video on. Right now, I'm streaming this video on Float. Less people are watching it there. But you know what? Partly why less people are watching it there is because I am on YouTube. Kick me off YouTube, and the people that really want to see what I want to say are going to come and follow me. And this is the real solution here, because I just want you to start thinking about how stupid this idea really is. Let's look for obvious places where we can decouple several of the big tech monopolies that people want to call it, like Dr. Evil Monopoly, right? Okay, so we have Google and YouTube. So what are you going to do? You're going to make YouTube its own company like it started out before Google bought it. Now you've got Google over here and YouTube over here. So what? What, have you, what do you think you've done? You know, like right now when I walk around in like a store and there's still like, like the, the 5 to 10% of society that's walking around with a mask on their face... I want to act. I, I don't bother them because I think people should have, you know, should be able to be left alone, even if what they're doing is really dumb. They should be able to be left alone. But what I want to say is, what do you think you're doing? What do you think you're accomplishing? Right? Because even the people that told you to wear the mask said that your mask is to protect me. It doesn't protect you. Which I know is stupid, but since no one else is doing this, what do you think you're doing? And they wouldn't have an answer. And I think when you ask somebody, well, what do you think you would accomplish if you separated Google and YouTube, they might say it sounds like a good idea, but they don't have any. Do you think that if you did that, and, and, and most of the staff that's running YouTube today would kind of go along and become the, the new YouTube Inc., and then the Google would be Google Search Inc. or something like that, do you think that all of a sudden that Google would stop using unfair practices in how they list results, or that YouTube Inc. would stop censoring videos to talk about subjects that the woke-ass sons of bitches that run it don't want discussed. Do you think that would actually fix anything? And I, I don't. I mean, I, I don't see how you could expect that. Let's look at Amazon Web Services and Amazon's uh, product line. So do you think if you, you made it AWS Inc. its own company, you know, its own public company, and then you made Amazon product delivery its own company, that all of a sudden uh, Amazon would stop undercutting merchants all over the country? Do you think that all of a sudden AWS wouldn't, you know, ban, you know, people for wrong speak from their platform? Do you think that would actually change that? Because isn't that the problem that you're trying to address here? Or the other thing I've heard people talk about is, well, we should break up Amazon's product sales from their third-party services market. So I can sell on Amazon, you can sell on Amazon, sort of like you sell on eBay. But when you do that, you're also competing with Amazon. The only person that would, only people that would hurt 
would be the people that sell on Amazon third-party services. The reason they sell third-party service is because they get integrated into the listings and people that are on Amazon.com find them. If you made it Amazon's thirdpartysellers.com, less people are going to go there and the third-party sellers are going to sell less. What do you think you've accomplished? If you take Facebook and you decouple Facebook and Instagram like it was before, do you think all of a sudden Instagram is not going to be woke? Do you think all of a sudden Facebook isn't going to throw you in Facebook jail? What do you think you're going to accomplish with all this? Well, we'll hurt them. Okay, maybe, probably not. And that's not fixing the problem. See, this is problem-reaction-solution. Guess who was all about, nobody even talks about this anymore, guess who was all about breaking up big tech just like a year and a half ago? Creepy Sleepy Joe. Go look it up. Go go to go to you know Google or you have a choice, and we'll get to that. So you can go to like DuckDuckGo or PreSearch or all these different options that you have, and search for Biden breakup big tech. You'll find it was all over the news, and then something happened. Something happened, didn't it? Something happened during the election cycle, and all of a sudden, Creepy Sleepy Joe wasn't talking about it no more. Huh, funny that. And, and people would say, well, Jack, is it, isn't that an example of the abuse that you know, these big tech companies are committing? Apple and Google Play conspiring with Amazon Web Services, Facebook, and Twitter to completely deplatform a sitting president of the United States and to deplatform the alternative social media platform that those people were using to communicate with each other in parlor. Isn't that the case to break them up? No. Because you're not going to prevent it anyway. Well, if we break them up, then we'll have antitrust between those two platforms. You didn't, nobody did anything when all of them conspired against the sitting president. So do you think they're going to do something because your post about something that you thought was important was taken down just because they broke them up? They're not going to do anything. This isn't going to help anything. And much like wireless carriers made copper-based monopoly irrelevant and roads made rail and train irrelevant, we're sitting on the precipice of an evolution in technology that I don't think the average person comprehends right now. And it's because it's, it's not an evolution. It's not, okay, so we're going to go from copper to wireless. Because that's not really... The innovation, right? It was copper to wireless to data to applications. That was the evolution. That was the and that created thousands of permutations. And eventually, somebody dominated that space and all the spaces that came out of it. The innovation wasn't just we went on the internet. The innovation was social media itself. But it didn't start out as social media. It started out as chat boards. The early chat boards were all the way back in the mid '80s. When, when I, you know, kids like me were on our Commodore 64s and we were using handset copper line telephones where you had to dial the phone and set it in the modem rack to connect with another board somewhere that other people had to connect to where one group of people could communicate in one place. And if you wanted to talk somewhere else, you had to dial a different number. And then it became dial-up internet. Nobody uses dial-up internet anymore, do they? Right? I guess a few people do in some rural places, but it's a dead technology. And then that led to like the AOL chat things where you could log in. And I'm not talking about like real-time chat, I'm more like the little boards that they had. And then those became self-hosted forums through things like PHPBB, 
right? PHPBB and SMH, uh, Simple Machine Forums, SMF, Simple Machine Forums, and other standalone forums. And then social media came along and pretty much displanted forums. And then social media consolidated, just like search consolidated, just like online retail consolidated to a few big players. And the big players are not just Amazon. You know, Walmart is a massive online retailer. And this is a normal cycle. And what always happens is right at the point of the pinnacle of that cycle, the next evolution of technology comes. And the last thing that we need right now is to set a precedent that when things aren't quite the way we want them in the world of online communication... Because that's what this is all really about. Even if you're selling a product or using advertising or, or distributing data in any form, it's really different forms of online communication. When you buy something, it's a communication. You're saying to the seller, I want this thing. The seller's saying, you can have this thing. This is how much it is. You're sending the money. That's a communication stream. Just because it's money doesn't change it. You're communicating dollars instead of communicating words. And then they're communicating back, we got your order, and then it comes in the mail. So this is all about communications, and this is what's about to happen. These alternative media sites, as they're called by the lamestream, and I call it new media, are working on a different mindset. The mindset of Facebook is, I will grow large and eat everything. Okay. The mindset of Amazon is, I will grow large and eat everything. Like People know a lot about the Amazon affiliate program now where you can sell Amazon products as an affiliate. What people don't remember is that when Amazon started, they already had this predisposition. The only thing they really sold in the very beginning was books. That's what they started on, books. And there was Amazon, and there was Barnes & Noble. And both of them came out with an affiliate program. And Amazon said, if thou shalt sell a book on Amazon as an affiliate, thou shalt not sell books anywhere else or we will terminate thy account. Because their intent from the beginning was to destroy competition and to absorb the competition strong enough to withstand them, to buy WhatsApp, to buy Instagram. That was always their plan. To buy technologies and obsolete it, even when it was a stupid idea. Yahoo, who was the, you know, trying to stand against Google, buys Broadcast.com and runs it straight into the ground with no idea of what they didn't even know what it was when they bought it. Google didn't buy YouTube because they thought it would become what it became. Google bought YouTube because they had so much capital they had to spend it because there was talk of turning their stock into a mutual fund because they had too much reserve capital. We, we, we can't forget where all this shit came from if we want to understand the solution is where we're going, not trying to break it apart and keep it where it is. You set that precedent and what happens is when what's about to happen happens, the big tech companies say, hey, this isn't fair. you got to do something about them now and they have the money and the lead on the lobbyist curve. Right? So this is what's going to happen. These new companies are not out to absorb each other. Now, I'm not talking about Parler and Getter and all these things that are just like surrogates for Fox News. And, and you go on there and it's all Tucker Carlson. I'm talking about the real innovations out there that are not trying to just copy the existing platforms. I'm talking about the floats. And if they can ever get their shit straight, D-Buzz and... All of these new companies that are coming out and coming out with encrypted technologies, privacy-respecting technologies, uh, revenue models that do not rely on harvesting user data, that say they will not harvest user data, that use freemiums, all of these corporations and companies and blockchain-based projects, a huge portion of them are saying, we will work with anyone. 
instead of seeing this entity over here as a competitor, we understand how big this space is, and we will make our content interoperable. We'll build chains and side chains and multi-chains, and we will create a federation. And users that want to use multiple platforms will be able to use them from a centralized location of their choosing. Basically, you become your own central hub, and you use multiple means of communication. We won't interfere with that. We won't track you across multiple platforms. We understand that your eyeballs and your attention on our platform bring value to us, and we're willing to share that value back to you. If there's going to be advertising, it's going to be permission-based advertising. If the advertising is going to be targeted to your behavior, it will be targeted to your behavior on the platform, not data mining of your thing. So if you're always posting sports shit, yeah, we're going to show you sports shit in the advertising because that makes sense. But I don't need to harvest and store your data. Your profile alone can tell me that in real time. Which is actually, think about this, this is a better way to advertise. If, if Facebook determines that I'm a huge Pittsburgh Steelers fan, and so they keep putting NFL ads in front of me, and they don't really understand that I don't give a flying shit about football anymore at all because they're not real-timing it, how, value is that, how valuable is the advertising to somebody that's advertising something NFL-related that I'm never going to buy? But yet it'll still show up because it's locked into that, that, that dossier, these things. There's a difference between saying, hey, look, this... This user, that's not Jack Spear, it's user 118319, just posted a whole bunch of shit about this, and we have an advertiser that matches that. Let's, let's drop that in and let him see that. I don't have a problem with that, especially if it's permission-based, especially if they're sharing the revenue with me, the way that platforms like the Brave Browser do. So what happens when you get the Brave Browser that can use all the Google Chrome extensions, even though it's not Chrome, and no, Google can't control what Brave does with that open-source code? It's open source code. They're their own worlds now, but they're backwards compatible with extensions, right? Besides, well, we're going to work in so that we can integrate with all of these other platforms. And then when you go out and you, we eventually have something like Float Marketplace, and you're able to put out an item on Float Marketplace, it goes across multiple social networks, but the transaction has to take place on Float Marketplace, So that anybody that's following you, that likes you, that loves what you do, that says, hey, I want to do business with this person, I want to know what's up, no matter where they are in this federation, is able to see into what you're doing when you want them to. How does Facebook compete with this? And the answer is they don't. And so the other side of this is, well, what we really need to do is make sure they can't just keep buying people out. Oh, because that'll spur innovation. Right, So if I'm now going to um, venture capitalists and I'm trying to get money to build this new technology, having five or six companies not be able to ever initiate a buyout, that'll make the, the, the investors give me more money, right? So that'll, that'll increase. You see how stupid that is? There's no world in which any of this makes sense. The world that these, these breaking up of monopolies make sense in is a world of static technology that doesn't evolve. Somebody here in the, uh, in the comments section right here, survival tips and other stuff says, Pony Express, telegraph, telephone, satellite, cell, fiber optics, one, two, three, four, 5G networks, right? 
five. Like, this is exactly what I'm saying. Like, the way that this problem is rectified is through the ad advancement of technology. And, and, and the, whatever government touches a thing, they damage it. I don't think you can show me ever where government touched something and in the long term, meaning a decade or more, that the people that used it, loved it, wanted it, had it, were better off for it. And if anybody can, since I'm live right now, drop it in the comments. Go ahead. I would love to see exactly what the government has touched that is better for having touched it. We just touched Afghanistan for 20 years. We put $2 trillion into touching Afghanistan, right? Did that, did that make Afghanistan better than it was before we touched it? Are we better for having touched it? Okay, so $2 trillion putting the, the most advanced military in the world against people that live in caves, and that didn't make anything better. But they're going to fix the Internet. Have you guys seen the ads that are being run now? And they're targeting, it looks like they're targeting like 25 to 30-year-olds. But they're not. They're targeting people like my age is what they're really targeting. Like our sympathy for the youth and our trust in the youth about technology. Have you seen this about we need to regulate the Internet? It's code, right? It's, it's code for bringing back net neutrality, which is a fucking disaster and doesn't ever need to be a thing. We, the Internet did just fine without it for its 14 years. We had it for a couple years and it went away again and nothing bad's happened. But do you see, have you guys, anybody out there, put a Y in for me if you've seen these ads, if you know what I'm talking about. Where they have this young person and they're like, you know, they're a 25, 27, 28-year-old kid. And they're like, you know, I remember back in 2000-whatever when I got my first Facebook. Like anybody says, I got my Facebook. Like, that's how you know it's not actually targeting that generation who's not using Facebook, by the way, right? And then they're like, and then I got my Instagram, and then, 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 and I realize it's been 20 years, and we've never updated our Internet regulations. I think the time is now. As though any 25, 27-year-old is out there talking like that. It's as nonsensical. It's as nonsensical as when... You have these commercials where they're advertising a drug and they're like, because of my moderate to severe psoriasis. Nobody says they have moderate to severe psoriasis or any other disease. No one talks like that. These ads are designed to trigger emotion. Everything you see is programming. And the programming right now is, oh, we need to save the Internet. We need to fix the Internet. And the only way we can make the Internet better is for the government to touch the internet. When you say, we need to break up big tech, what you're saying is really, really simple. We need to ask the government for help with the greatest technology humanity has ever developed for itself. And I'm going to tell you, if you're one of these people that call yourselves a libertarian, and you're for breaking up big tech, what you need to do right now is get up from in front of the screen Go into like the bathroom or some room with a large mirror so you can see it when you do it to yourself. And you need to punch yourself in the freaking face multiple times for calling yourself a libertarian or until you wake up. It's your choice. And if that doesn't work, punch yourself in the dick, man. 
but that you are not a libertarian if you are saying, I want the, and you're definitely not an anarchist, right? But you're not a libertarian. You're not even for small government. If you think this is a good idea, you're asking government for its help in the thing that is the most liberating technology ever created while it's still in its infancy. And this is what we need to understand. The Internet is an infant. It's an infant. It is not even a teenager yet. Where we're headed is so far from where we are. We're headed to a world of this federation of communication websites and distribution websites with a backbone that's both the HTTP backbone that you're familiar with, the dub-dub-dub, right, and blockchain-based domains and IPFS. In a world where we'll get to where there's no special knowledge needed, it's seamless. That You're moving from the, what we think of today as the web to the IPFS-based web and to whatever comes next without even, without even feeling it. Maybe there's a little indicator like just so you know somewhere in whatever we call a browser at that point. And this shit's coming fast. We don't need any help. And, and I'm going to get right to the point again as I wrap up here. If you think we need the government to do this, before we allow the government to do a single thing at all, you need to show me a place where government touched something and made it better, and just to cover the base, if the government did a thing that was bad and then took it away and things got better, the government didn't make it better. You can't play that bullshit trick on me with this, this, this request. So you can't say something, well, what about the Civil Rights Act? Oh, so you mean when government took away its own restrictions on people that could vote? No, no, no. See, they caused the problem. Like, if, if they actually wake up to something and stop doing a thing, I'm happy, but they didn't fix it. They stopped fucking it up. So you're asking an entity with a 100% track record of making things worse when they touch a thing to touch the thing that we all use every day when you ask them to break up big tech. No one makes you watch this video on YouTube. You have choices. No one makes you use Facebook. You have choices. No one makes you have an iPhone. You have choices. No one makes you do anything in this world. There is no monopoly. It does not exist. It is a choice of the average individual which platforms they use. I suggest you start using some of the other ones because they are the future. With that, we'll go ahead and wrap up. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series. And please remember, you can always support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com or becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade.